absolutely need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. For the entire hour today, we're talking with representatives of Voice Buffalo about the variety of programs that they're engaged in, a lot of them focusing on criminal justice, not just rights for the incarcerated, but uh, especially now in light of the top shooting, education for the community as we start to look at the possibility of a trial there. They're also involved in disability rights, uh, working a lot with, uh, again, incarcerated people. Much to talk about for the entire hour. And to do that, we have three people with us. Reverend Denise Walden-Glenn is here. Tyrell Ford is here. Aisha Bingham is here. All together, we've got a lot of conversation to unspool. So uh, stick with us. It's going to be a a very interesting, in-depth hour. Reverend Walden-Glenn, thanks for being here. We'll start with you. Thank you for having me. What education does the community need right now about the courts as we prepare to possibly prosecute Peyton Gendron for the top shootings? Um, I think there's a lot of education that needs to happen, or at least information around navigating the court process. Um, there were a lot of questions in the beginning of the trials about like the arraignment, what that looked like. Um, the timeline on when the trial actually starts versus the time um, he was arrested and the arraignment hearing. And then what are the differences between the state case and the federal case? And we know in the state case, we've gotten our plea and that's going where it needs to go. But now there's still a lot of questions around what's going to happen with the federal case, how he's actually going to plea and what next steps will be. On Friday, in court, it was revealed that uh, he is prepared, in the words of his attorney, is prepared to plead guilty to the federal case as long as the death penalty is off the table. The, the part of the rationale for that the defense attorneys are putting out is that would that would be better for the community. There wouldn't have to be a trial. There wouldn't have to be trauma. Do you agree? I believe that this is a very sensitive issue. I believe it's one that... Um, a lot of folks are wrestling with, including those who are most impacted by this tragedy. I believe that as a community, we have to wrestle with that question of what truly is going to be justice? What is justice going to look like in this situation? Um, We can look at the death penalty and we can say that we would like to see uh, the attorney general seek the death penalty, but will ending his life truly bring justice to this horrific act that happened. And we also have to look at where all the responsibility lies. And if we're just placing all of our anger and our rage um, in one direction, when there's still a larger context that we need to look at. And to my mind, correct me if I'm wrong, the larger context is that the death penalty has been used often against black and brown people disproportionately. Yes, it has. So you're kind of in a in a quandary there, I would think. Not not you in general, but, but the, the public. It's definitely conflicting. And I think also the age of this individual makes a difference to how people are viewing uh-huh. this case. Um, I have to say in my lifetime, I've known many young people who have gotten incarcerated at very young ages from 16 to 18 years old, um, serving significant uh, sentences. But when they come home, they are definitely not the same person they were when they got arrested. And some of them arrested for what ones would classify as a heinous act. Again, I'm not saying that this is not the death penalty is not something we should be looking at. But I am asking people, to, again, to wrestle with that. What does justice If we like? talk about the death penalty, you want to make sure that it's in the broadest context possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to make sure like we've really considered all 
of the pieces of this and understanding uh, this person is 18 years old. This person was radicalized um, for a good portion of their life and how that impacted. And again, is this where we really want to place all of um, the guilt, all of the blame, or do we need to be taking some of the energy we're placing there and look at the larger context and larger scope of things? You said a moment ago that you are familiar with several people his age or younger who have dealt with the criminal justice system, who have been incarcerated. Tell me a story. Um, to be honest, I think all of us who do this work have personal stories. So my um, only biological brother, who is uh, seven years younger than me, has been impacted by the carceral system since he was 14 years old. Um, and so I've watched what it's done to his life and impacted his life. Um, but similarly, the father of my children, my ex-husband, um, has been in and out of the carceral system since he was 13 years old. And so, again, just looking at who they are now in their 30s and 40s versus who they were um, when they were impacted by these things, um, they're very different people. They've grown a lot. Um, and to see what they're accomplishing in their life now, I have to think that if uh, one were to think of something like life in prison or the death penalty when they um, committed some of the offenses they were charged with as teenagers and really children almost, um, what would be the difference in their life? Um, so, yeah. And a lot of what Voice Buffalo does, maybe this is the point where we bring in Tyrell. Absolutely. Uh, Tyrell Ford is with us. He's their lead organizer. A lot of what Voice Buffalo does is work with the incarcerated populations, or as you said, people who have been impacted by the carceral system, <laughs> basically those who have been to jail. Um, talk about your work, Tyrell. What does it look like? Do you actually, maybe not with COVID anymore, but do you go into the prisons and, and work with these people, talk with them about the concerns they're having, or is it more of a reintegration program after release? So as a person who is directly impacted by the legal system, it is a lifelong sentence to carry around a felony. Um, so what we try to do is make sure we educate everybody who's been in that system um, just on the importance of our civic duties um, because we need to change the laws that directly impact, Im impacts us um, because we, we deserve a right just to be a human and just to live a normal life. And our criminal history shouldn't define us. When you say we, do you have a personal story to tell that you want to share on the radio? Yeah, so I'm I'm directly impacted. I went through the court system. I have a second degree, <clears throat> excuse me, a second degree felony. Um, and that was something that happened right after college. I got into like a little street fight where somebody had got injured. Um, and I, I own up to it because um, that was the one mistake I made in my life. Um, but the process in which I was treated going through my court case was very traumatic for me, being a um, first-time person going through the court system. It impacted my mental health. Um, I didn't even want to talk about it when I got out because it's so, like, I don't want nobody judging me mm. and making claims about my character because that happened a lot of, a lot during the trial. Um because po folks felt like they knew me just based off the size of me and the color of my skin. But if most people tell you I'm lovable, <laughs> I'm enjoyable to be around. But during that, that whole court case, they painted me as a, a villain and a, just an ugly human being. And did the painting continue post-release? It didn't because it was mostly in my mind because I was telling the story and the narrative in my mind that I was the person that was... You were defining yourself yes. the way you wanted to define yourself. Yes, and knowing that society labels us often, especially when they find out that you have a record, like, oh, he's a criminal, he's a thug, and you just don't want to hear those stories as you try to rebuild yourself and your brand, because you are a brand, so... You, you try to, like, quiet the, the crowd down before you, you actually step into spaces like that. And so part of your work with Voice as an organizer is to go 
into the prisons and talk to people before release? Yes, because it's important to like know what avenues you can take, what steps you can take to better your life. Um, when I got out, I didn't know which way to go. I didn't know that I'd be able to get a job because we often like, oh, a felony, you ain't going to be able to work nowhere. But a lot of folks are making it, and we are striving, um, and we are the people who needs to tell our story. Denise, you're nodding your head. Um, <laughs> these stories don't get told a lot, do they? No, they don't. Not the true story anyway. A lot of what we talk about in voice is the sacred narrative, which is what we know as people who are of and from and in the community to be true versus what the dominant narrative, what's assumed about us, um, the the stereotypes that people try to fold us into that aren't necessarily always true. You look at someone who has been incarcerated for multiple years for um, offenses like uh, drugs or um, assault or sometimes even murder. And we tell a narrative about those people, but we don't talk about the things and the policy decisions that have impacted their life that pushed them into making decisions like the ones that they did. And now they're stuck for the rest of their life with this almost black mark on them that they can't come out of. And not just them, I should say us as someone who I've never been incarcerated, but I've definitely been through the legal system. Um, I've been arrested and tried for cases in my life. And I remember when I was going through my trial, the story that was being told to my children and my family about me as a mother was one of the most shameful and horrific times of my life. And it's one that breaks my heart till this day because I know I was not the person that they tried to make me out to be in that courtroom. And I also know my story. I know what I come from. Um, and so I know what I work to overcome to become the person that I am now. How much of uh, an interplay is there between things like reacting to May 14th uh, I know you have something called the Radical Love Fund community work that would be ongoing regardless of your criminal justice stuff and how much of what Voice Buffalo does is the criminal justice stuff. So the truth is, um, Voice Buffalo, we are an restorative interfaith racial justice and equity organizing organization. And so we do all that we can to keep our work from being reactive, although to some degree it will always be reactive because as long as there are systems in place that oppress people and break people, we have to respond to that. But the response that we give to that is not so much in just focusing on what's broken and what we get people while they're broken, but what needs to happen to either reconstruct and rebuild or what needs to be new that will allow people the things that they need every day to thrive in life, not even just survive. And so our work is definitely more upstream and figuring out, okay, yes, we know these things are broken, like these things in the criminal justice system are broken, but what laws, what policies need to be in place that we no longer will have a system that is breaking people, but truly restoring people and giving people a chance to thrive in life. The example I think of reactive, yes, in that after the top shooting, there was a march in Washington that you led talking about gun rights, but then non-reactive, the kind of things that Terrell was talking about, ongoing programs to work with the incarcerated, two prongs. Absolutely. It's uh, both, right? We need to be doing both. We need to be able to support people where they are, but we also need to be able to be building the thing that we need. And the truth is, even when we look at May 14th, May 14th um, happened because the east side of Buffalo is an impoverished community, right? Um and because they're an impoverished community, they're a food apartheid. And because they're a food apartheid, that made them an easy target for this individual to come into knowing that there would be a large amount of people at that market on that day doing their weekly shopping. But at Voice, we often say poverty is a policy choice. So... We don't just look at what happened on May 14th. We don't just look at the fact that we're food apartheid, but we look at why and we look at what policy should be in place so a community never has to be that in the first place. Now, that's interesting, and, and maybe we'll take a break here and pick it up on the other side. Poverty is a policy choice. Absolutely. I have never heard anyone say that before, but I, 
I think I know where you're going. We'll go there after this. Reverend Denise Walden-Glenn is with us from Voice Buffalo. Also, Aisa Bigham, we'll hear from her after the break. And Tyrell Ford, one of their organizers as well. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Hey, have you seen WNED PBS's Compact Science or Shakespeare's Greatest Hits? Here's five reasons to check them out. Compact Science is so fun, high energy, and educational that it won three prestigious awards, a communicator award, a telly, and an award from the New York State Broadcasters Association. And Shakespeare's Greatest Hits also received a communicator award and a telly for cinematically portraying some of Shakespeare's best monologues in bite-sized videos. Check them out at WNED.org or on YouTube. Watch the WNED PBS original production, Niagara Falls. Visit a place that is a symbol, a shrine, a theme park, a natural wonder, and the world's capital of romance, Niagara Falls. Now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And we are here talking with several members of Voice Buffalo, including Reverend Denise Walden-Glenn, their director, before the break, you said poverty is a policy choice. Explain that. So when we look at um, a lot of the policies that are written uh, in our government, right, we notice that there are some trends um, that impact people's everyday ability to survive, thrive, live, be. Um, for instance, we look at we'll just take a system like social services uh, and folks who receive social services. Within social services, there are all these uh, kind of things written about how you use them. So if a person is on social services receiving child care support, food stamps, cash assistance, and they get a job, once they get to working, even if they make 50 cents too much, we remove all uh, of their benefits, leaving them worse off than they were while they were receiving all the services. But then we say, well, why won't people just go to work? Well, how do I go to work if it's going to cost me more to work and my children are going to suffer more as I work than if I just stay receiving the supports that I'm getting? How do we reform that? A graduated scale of some sort? I think there definitely needs to be a scale of some sort that allows people some room to grow and to build what they need to build in order to transition off. There should be a transition process. A person shouldn't just now be making 50 cents too much and now you no longer get food stamps. Now you no longer get child care. But these are still things that you need in order to make sure that you're meeting your everyday needs for your life. Voice Buffalo concentrates, as I said, on some issues around the criminal justice system. Before the program's done, we'll touch, touch on your work with the disabled community. But I want to talk specifically about the east side community and some of the support they need right now. What efforts do they need? What efforts are you underway with? Um, I think there are several needs on the east side of Buffalo. I know before the break I mentioned the fact that the east side is a food apartheid, mm -hmm. and yet still Tops has been reopened, but right now they are still the only grocer in that area, which should have never been the case. And that's been the case on the east side of Buffalo for a very long time. Um, so that's one of the things. But, like, we also often talk at Voice about um, how are we – not just pushing people toward home ownership, but equipping them with what they need to really understand what it takes to own and sustain owning your own home. We're at risk of people losing even their rental homes because the rents have gone sky high because of gentrification on the east side of Buffalo. And so when we talk about racial uh, justice and equity campaigns on the east side of Buffalo, whether it's housing or climate, there is no area that we don't need to be discussing. Aisha Bingham, 
Come on in. Uh, slide up to the microphone a little bit. You grew up on Landon Street near the top shooting? I grew up on Landon Street, down the street from Tops, before Tops was even a existing. Thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. so I remember being a kid and um, us finally getting a grocery store instead of like having to go to a corner store or having to venture out somewhere else to get groceries because getting groceries used to be like a thing, a trip. Like you wait, might go to the Broadway market and do your grocery shopping there, but we couldn't get stuff in our community and were the corner stores part of that um loaf of bread quarter milk down from the the bodega you can get it but it's not always the best quality um so in order to get fresher vegetables to get bread that's not expired or on its way to being expired you had to venture out elsewhere to get what you needed and I imagine you said that was a trip. It was a trip. It was like a yeah. thing. It was like a thing like everyone did. <laughs> Not just do it. Let's plan it. Let's yeah, figure let's it out. Let's plan it take... out. Let's yeah. plan it out. Let's allocate some time to like go and get groceries, which we shouldn't have to do that. We should just be able to have access to these things. Once upon a time, I know um, the Bellamy's had a grocery store on Jefferson. And I'm talking what, maybe 40, even 50 years ago. Um, in the 80s, briefly, there was Figmo's. Finally, I got my own store, also on Jefferson. When they went away, there was a period between them and Tops where it was it was nothing. Nothing. And I, I'm only 30, so I right, don't know. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, but, I'm older than you are. Uh, but sadly. there was definitely nothing there, and that's why there was such a dire need to um, have Tops there in the first place. But even now, after the shooting and Tops being reopened, like I know personally I don't feel comfortable going to the store, in the store, and I don't live in the area anymore, but I have family who are still in that area who don't feel comfortable going to that store. So for them, it's still An something issue. that they have to yeah. plan out mm -hmm. because they just don't want to go down the street. In a lot of the discussion I've heard, people have talked about, well, well let's bring in a Wegmans or let's bring in an Aldi. Um, but just another store wouldn't necessarily do it, which is why we have to look at things like the African Heritage Food Co-op, um, more community ownership, not just another big box dropped in from the sky to, to be a supermarket. For sure. Like for me, that's great to have another grocery store in the area. We definitely need that, but we need more community initiatives um, in our communities. Uh, I'm going to go around the, around the table here giving you the magic wand first. Wave okay. it and solve all of the problems. <laughs> um, what one big thing would you do? Wave that wand and what, what would you like to see happen? On the east side? Yeah. Is it is it the issue of food access? There are so many things that I could wave a wand on and If only the wand worked. Fix. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so access to groceries is another thing, but for me personally, on the east side, I would like to see um, there's so many vacant lots. And how are we utilizing this space on the east side? And not just developers coming in, buying it up, and building things that we can't even afford to live in. All right. So how does like the community have access to these, to these lots um, that are owned by the city? Yeah. And how do we build on that? Whether it be co-op more co-ops whether that be community gardens affordable housing that's actually affordable um developing some type of ownership programs that is not a hassle to get put in and stay in or try to understand like how how as a community do we build on the east side mm -hmm. and and the the how part of that is massive i mean uh, there's got to be solutions developed. That's why we need that magic wand. Yeah, I hear you. Okay, <laughs> now, now let's pass the, the wand over to Denise, Denise Walden Glenn. Um, wave the wand. What would you point it at? Wow. Um, so let me just say I would, I, I love where Asia went with this. And the truth is, I don't think it takes a whole lot of magic to do that. I think there's some people sitting right now in city of Buffalo government that could just as much as um, we are selling 
plots of land and uh, vacant homes to developers for a dollar and allowing them to renovate them and do things with them. We could offer those same deals to people who are up and from. So like I literally live a six minute walk from Tops, right, in Hamlin Park. And I think about all of the empty houses. I think about the plots of land. If those would be given to the families who already live in Hamlin Park, we know exactly what we would do with them with some support. We give developers breaks. We give these folks tax breaks and cheap uh, sales of land and homes. Why can't we do the same thing for community folks? And so if I waved my wand, uh, that's what city government would do. And then uh, organizations like Voice would partner with others and create home ownership programs where not only are we helping people to own their own home, but again, giving them the necessary tools and education so that they could sustain it, so that they're not getting violations from the city on their home and then their homes are being taken from them or that they understand how to navigate paying their property taxes so they could maintain their homes. Um, and then putting community gardens right in communities, which would solve some of the issues with fresh fruits and vegetables. And so now we're equipping communities with what they need to thrive on their own without always having to look for an outside source. And lastly, we slide the wand around the table, Tyrell Ford. So um, wave my, the, what, do you, what do you point the wand at? So my magic wand will be to give 100 <laughs> community members some of the American Rescue Funds to build businesses right in the heart of the east side. That way our community... Head nodding, finger snapping all around the table. <laughs> that way our community can thrive and strive for better, and we can bring back what the east side of Buffalo used to look like. I hear a lot of stories about going down Genesee and Broadway, and it was just black businesses and black-owned, mm -hmm. and I'm like, we need that. We need that to return. We had uh, Tim Thielman, the preservationist on this program yesterday, and he has done a study of, of the, um, the lack of housing, found out something really interesting that I had never thought of before. When the Depression came along and there was all these federal funds to develop new housing, they took out the old housing. And at the time, he's done some, some research into the numbers, at the time, the old housing they took out were shop houses, retail down on the bottom, apartments above. So... When they were eliminating chunks of housing, they were also eliminating retail. Does that then therefore mean new development must be multi-use? I think that new development should be multi-use. And I think that um, not only does it need to be new development, but I think we don't need people in City Hall determining what that development is going to look like. And we definitely don't need them planning that with the current developers. This kind of work needs to be done in community with community. We know a lot of what we need. Um, again, I take it back to the tops. And if we look at historically from the time tops was put into the east side of Buffalo to now, um, there has been a laundry list of issues with that store because they've had no competition and there hasn't been any community involvement in saying this is what we need out of this store. And so there's a lot of unmet needs yet still in our neighborhood. For instance, my husband is a diabetic. Thank God I have a car and I can drive and I, I make a livable wage, right, where I can go get the things that he needs, but I can't get the things that he needs to meet his health concern inside my own community. So I have to go outside of my community get those things and that's the truth for a lot of us but then what about a lot of people in our community don't they don't drive a lot of them don't make livable wages so how are they getting their health met needs if they're not able to be met by the tops and tops we i mean it's good they're there i think the whole table would agree but tops is not community ownership it is not community ownership. And again, it's the difference in doing things to and for people instead of with people. I know that we've definitely had a conversation with them about what does it look like to increase community engagement and get community input. But again, that's not enough. The east side of Buffalo is primarily a black community. And I think we need to talk about how do we build black wealth um, within the east side of Buffalo instead of gentrifying it in such a way that the people who have been part of that community for generations no longer can afford to live in 
their own community. It's the old phrase, and uh, I first learned it from Jerome Wright, who's going to be on the program later this week, and I know he's on your board. Uh, he's, he's always said, if it's about us but not with us, it's not for us. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, that's that's my saying. Nothing about us without us go. is for us. Um, and absolutely, we need to make sure that these, not just the conversations, but the decisions are happening with us and not to us or for us. All right. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. Denise Walden-Glenn is here. Terrell Ford and Asia Bingham from Voice Buffalo. We'll look more at what they do, some of their work on the criminal justice side. We haven't even touched the work they do with the disabled community, so that's on the table, too. Much more to come. Stay with us. It's Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. There are a lot of great ways to spend $8 a month and get a blue check mark. So why not become a member of WBFO, your NPR station? You'll be a verified member on the spot, and your money will support high-quality news and information. For fun, we'll send you a snazzy window cling and a travel mug, both with our logo and the blue check mark that shows everyone you're a verified member of WBFO. Just call 1-877-456-8870 or go to WBFO.org to make your pledge. Thank you. Get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the WBFO daily email. Visit WBFO.org to sign up today. Our region is home to some of the finest communities in the world. Explore them through the Our Town series produced by WNED PBS, but captured by community members on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel today. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is David Debo. Asia Bingham is here. Terrell Ford is here. And Reverend Denise Walden-Glenn are here. All of them from Voice Buffalo. If you go to voicebuffalo.org on the biography page there, you have a quote, Denise, on your own bio. It is easier to raise strong children than to repair broken men. A quote from Frederick Douglass. Another way of saying it takes a village and Voice Buffalo is the village. Am I extrapolating too much? No, you're not. No, you're not. Um, I heard that quote and fell in love with it uh, as a mom. Um, I, I'm actually a mom of 12, but biologically I have all 12. Oh, we got a story to tell there. <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, I'm the mom of 12, uh, but all of my biological children are sons, and I've adopted three sons um, in addition to my three biological sons. And so coming to a city like Buffalo and coming out of generational poverty and knowing that in Buffalo, one out of three young black men will end up incarcerated um, and they're more likely to end up incarcerated than with a high school diploma is heartbreaking to me. And so when we look at restoration and restorative communities and my native heritage, um, we believe communities will be well when all the children are well. And so that is what has driven me in this work, is working to build communities where we can truly say all the children are well. Because when they're well, we know the whole community is well. This might be a good point, and I, I don't always like to bog down the front end of a program with background, but this might be a good point to talk a little bit about who Voice Buffalo is, what some of the programs are that they do. Uh, 1996, community leaders from labor uh, and business and churches all got together to talk about community justice and equity. It became Voice Buffalo, and now you have a couple of different campaigns. One of them is Live Free. The other one is Street Certified. The two of them kind of interact with each other. Tell me what that's about. So Live Free and Street Certified are both very much deeply engaged in black liberation work and decarceration work. Um, again, we recognize that we have a legal system that some would call a legal justice system, but there is nothing that is just about that system. It is doing more harm and breaking more people um, than 
we and we know it, right? Like we know it. We know it's not working. But what happens when we do the work to truly liberate and restore people, um, even though they may have committed an offense that has been harmful, knowing that no one is above redemption. And so that's a lot of the work that we do through Live Free and Street Certified. Terrell, slide it a little bit to your left. Bring on uh, the microphone and and tell me what that looks like for you. Do you just go out as part of your job and and visit prisoners, basically? So I, I connect with directly impacted folks, um, and the reason I do that is because I am one, and we look to look for that redemption. Uh, we work on a lot of state policies that are looking to change the outcome of our lives, such as clean slate, which is still our record after a certain amount of years so we can get those jobs, so we can get those housing, so we can make a better living for our families because our family suffers when we are not making enough money to live or to even survive. So my job is to go out, educate, and help folks advocate for themselves um, because if we're not sharing our stories, we're doing ourselves a disservice. Um, mm-hmm. And I am one, so I'm right there next to him, armed, locked, and we have to move forward together. The Clean Slate legislation is pending right now in Albany? That is correct. What would that do for you? Oh, man, so I don't think I make enough. Um, I'm a man who graduated, but I got in trouble after I graduated. And after I got out, I got my master's degree. Um and I just feel like a lot of the jobs I can go for, I don't get because the background checks is already done before I even walk in the door. Um, and we see that a lot in our community is we're turned away before we can even get that interview. Um, so we have to make sure we are making sure our resumes are clean, um, discussing some of the fundamentals that we might have learned while we were away to make sure we are in a better position to get those jobs because, like I said, our family stru- suffers when we don't get those jobs. And clean slate, as it's proposed in Albany, would basically keep anyone from peeking into your records and know that you're a convicted felon before you get the job. That is correct. Is to lift that uh, disability um, from a person's life and will give them a, a, a nudge to get in that door and have that interview to articulate how they are going to bring in, uh, impact to that uh, corporation. Without that law in place right now, that this may be a very naive question. Do you prepare in advance? Do you almost leak the information on yourself so that way you can discuss it and mitigate it? Or would that be just tripping yourself up before you even get in the door? Um, honesty is the best policy. Um, if we um, don't talk about it, or don't write it down on an application or anything, they're going to just find out anyways. Cause the so inter- you preempt that? Yeah, the Internet is too vastly known. You could just look up a person's name and find out, like, Tyro Four versus the state of New York um, is right there. So. It's interesting the word you used. You called mm-hmm. it a disability. It is a disability because even the courts call it a disability because um, after I got home, uh they have this uh, piece of paper that says um, uh, Certificate of Relief from Disabilities, mm. which states that if you present this to an employer, you won't be judged on your past crimes. So even the state already calls it a disability. I didn't. That's interesting. That's very interesting. It also brings us, uh, we started the uh, segment by talking about the different things that uh, Voice Buffalo does. It also brings us to one of the other areas that they're involved in, and this is the Accessibility Disability Task Force. Acceptance, Respect, Inclusion, Support, Equity, ARISE, A-R-I-S-E. Denise, talk more about it. Absolutely. So you all can't see, but I'm smiling with a huge smile. Right now, um, Arise is one of the committees of Voice Buffalo that I absolutely love um, as a person who has an intellectual disability and who is the mother of an autistic son who also has cerebral palsy. I am no stranger to the barriers um, to folks who struggle with unique abilities. Right. And the truth is, if we look at every person and even we've just heard from Terrell Ford, 
because of his criminal past, there is a disability um, now to his life. And so we all have something unique about us that is a barrier or a challenge. But Arise um, is one of the most dynamic groups of people I've ever been blessed to work with as they fight um, to make sure that they get the things that will help them thrive in life. And they fought for everything like uh, access with transportation to the relocation of um, what used to be um, where they would go to deal with a lot of their disability services to have things transferred and get a satellite office at 1021 Broadway. Um, they were very instrumental in that fight, and now they're fighting for fair pay for home care, which is a fight that they had engaged in and got a $3 increase, but recognized that it's not enough um, for their home health care workers. And so they are powerful. And the shortage of home care workers for the disabled really impedes what someone can do. Absolutely. And I mean, I think for me, again, it comes back to policy being a poverty choice. Why are we not paying home health care workers a livable wage, understanding that they're the ones that we're entrusting to take care of our loved ones who don't have the ability to do all the things that need to be done to care for themselves, right? Why are they not making a livable wage so that they have enough to make sure that they can take care of their families and their everyday needs? And although, and Arise has said this many times, there's a lot of gratitude for the $3 increase um, over three years. It is just simply not enough for them to live off of. What beyond a better wage for home care workers do you want to see or what do you advocate for beyond that? So beyond uh, fair pay for home care, we're still looking for accessibility um, for folks who struggle with physical disabilities, right? There's some issues with things with the busing. Um, are, are we yeah. talking, forgive me for simplifying it, Curb cuts is that is that the entirety a, of it? That that's, it's bigger than that, it's, right? It's a lot bigger than that. Like that would be one small thing, but transportation access is a huge issue. Um, even just access to housing that's adequate to meet their needs is a huge issue. And so again, I think same as when we look at racial justice and equity, there is no lack of things that we could talk about when we talk about the needs of the uniquely abled community. Are there people you deal with that have, I, I don't want to say strikes, but deal with the issue on multiple levels, disabled and of color? Oh, absolutely. Um, we have folks who are disabled and of color who are also formerly incarcerated. Right? Oh, man. <laughs> and so, like, it's, it is such <laughs> a, a multi-layered issue to be thinking about. But I do, I, I, and again, I'm going to take it back to that. Um, it's easier to raise strong children than to repair broken men. And so if we look at even what's happening in our schools with children who are uniquely abled and how their needs aren't always met and what that's setting them up for as they become teenagers and young adults that have to survive in this society, it's, it's a scary thought. Last area I did want to touch on, and, and after the break we'll get into education because you just opened that door, and it was on my list anyway. But uh, the last area I want to get to, if, if, if we're going through the different programs that Voice Buffalo has, is the Radical Love Foundation. What's that? So Radical Love is a fund that Voice started, and we now partner with Free the People in um, and it's a fund where we collect donations year-round specifically to support families um, in our target zip codes, which are all on the east side of Buffalo, but in other places as well when needed, who are impacted by the legal system and by the carceral system um, because they just have needs that go unmet and unheard. And we want to make sure that they're there. For instance, we had a gentleman who um, had been released from being incarcerated and had got a job but suffered third-degree burns on his body at work um, and just did not have adequate insurance because job didn't offer it but needed supplies. So you were the financial support that helped yes. out. Okay. Yep. And the fund, now since 514, the fund has obviously expanded its mission. Absolutely. Um, so as it was very specific to legal incarcerally impacted people, it's now expanded to where we really use that fund to help pretty much almost anybody who reach, reaches out to us with a dire need. Um, and again, it's it's a reactive approach. So it's not something 
that we can it's not a magic wand yeah, right yeah it doesn't fix everything but hopefully offer some cushion as we look at long term what is needed what are you seeing is the number one unmet need right now wow if i'm honest between adequate housing and jobs i don't know which is worse um but adequate housing is definitely a huge need on the east adequate and affordable housing, I should say. Is there a trend line you can point to? The needs of the community, maybe even before 514, but in general, uh, a year ago versus now. What what kind of change have you seen? I mean, we've seen gentrification all over the city of Buffalo. We saw it in the Fruit Belt, and we watched people get pushed out of their homes that have been generational homeowners, and now we're seeing it in the Jefferson area. Um, and we're seeing it all over Buffalo. And so, again, I think it's this concept of development without community input that is really problematic for our community right now. All right. When we return again, uh, she opened the door. Got to talk about education. Reverend Denise Walden Glenn is here, along with Tyrell Ford and Aisha Bigham, both, all three of them, from Voice Buffalo. Stay with us. More to come. It's Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. There are a lot of great ways to spend $8 a month and get a blue check mark. So why not become a member of WBFO, your NPR station? You'll be a verified member on the spot, and your money will support high-quality news and information. For fun, we'll send you a snazzy window cling and a travel mug, both with our logo and the blue check mark that shows everyone you're a verified member of WBFO. Just call 1-877-456-8870 or go to WBFO.org to make your pledge. Thank you. Get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the WBFO daily email. Visit WBFO.org to sign up today. Our region is home to some of the finest communities in the world. Explore them through the Our Town series produced by WNED PBS, but captured by community members on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel today. This is Buffalo What's Next? where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Dave Debo continuing our discussion now with the representatives of Voice Buffalo, Reverend Denise Walden-Glenn, Terrell Ford, and Asia Bigham are here. Let's talk education. And I know it's not specifically part of the Voice Buffalo mandate, but if we're, we're looking at the quote you used earlier, it's easier to raise strong children than to repair broken men. If we're looking at the idea that a rising tide lifts all boats, I think we have to touch on education. What's wrong with education right now in the city of Buffalo? In the city of Buffalo, in this very moment, what I would say is we are lacking the social-emotional supports in the schools. We are also lacking um, programming that allows kids to learn uh, differently. We all have different learning styles, and how are we catering to the learning styles of our children and so we we have to be looking at those things and then we have to also understand that in a in an education system and in a district that there were already very many barriers we now have had this horrific community tragedy that has impacted our children and when i talk about the tragedy i'm not just talking about 514 i'm talking about going through covid and the loss and the grief that came with covid followed up by a 514 um, and then having our kids go into classrooms where they're expected to come in and just be on and learn and not taking into account any of what they're feeling and needing in this moment. You said social emotional. I know about, uh, what, three years ago the state passed a rule that every district has to have some sort of mental health curriculum. Is that not enough? What social and emotional needs are unmet? I mean, it's not enough to just have um, 
uh, mental health curriculum, we have schools that are already overpopulated and there's one social worker in the entire building trying to service all of these children and a lot of them with great needs, right? But when we talk about social emotional needs, we also have to talk about culturally relevant and competent programming um, that allow kids ways of expressing themselves and what they, how they're feeling and what they're being impacted by. Um, and it doesn't look like just thumbs up, thumbs to the side, thumbs down. How are you feeling today? Mm -hmm. It's going to take more robust programming than that. Um, and so this is definitely something that Voice is invested in. And there is an initiative that we're going to be pushing out in 2023 around this. But like we really need to build this out in our in our school program. And I want to highlight that Buffalo has one of the most comprehensive codes of conduct in the entire nation. But yet we have not fully implemented our code of conduct. Our code of conduct was co-created by parents like myself. Um, administrators, teachers, and the district. And there are a lot of things that are written into that code of conduct that I think that if we take the time to actually implement and implement well, we will start to see more success in our schools. Stuff like what? Um, stuff like school wellness teams um, that, again, are compromised of not just uh, staff for the district or staff in the building, but parents and people from the community. We have to look at what we see as safety and security in school. And why are we looking at SROs being in schools instead of uh, community-led initiatives to help address some of the things that we're seeing in schools behavior-wise with our young people? Um, and then again, how are we building in more programming that is culturally relevant and culturally competent that allow kids healthy outlets to what they're facing every day? All right. Now let's broaden the discussion beyond just the city of Buffalo schools. Do we need to look differently at how we educate people on race? Um, does the school district in, and I pick on it generically, and it is generically, does the school district in East Aurora or Orchard Park need to do something differently than, say, the school district in Buffalo when it comes to talking about race or even encouraging more talk about race? You know, you've definitely opened a can of worm with me when we start talking and about And there's seven <laughs> minutes left, so we can, we can uh, take care of this in that amount of time. Uh, when we talk about curriculum, I think that we've... there. We are very well aware that a lot of the curriculum that is taught in schools is not culturally relevant or sometimes even true. And so we definitely need to, I wouldn't say differently, I think there needs to be a different standard of how we're educating in the curriculum that we're using. And I also think that on a federal level, we need to, re, in a state level, we need to revisit this concept of common core and every student being able to learn material the same way um, when it's constructed. A, a when you say way. revisit it, that means you don't like it or do we need to implement more of it? As a parent, I am definitely not in favor of Common Core, and I never have been, and I never will be. Because it's a unified curriculum for every kid, and every kid is not cookie cutter. Absolutely. And I, I mean, it's funny because growing up, so mama used to have the saying that common sense isn't always so common. And I don't say that to insult anybody, but again, this is what happens when we push out initiatives into communities that we don't understand and we're doing things to and for and not with. And so this is something, this concept of common core is something that needs to be discussed deeper. I want to discuss it just a little bit deeper here. The advocates of it say um, that it promotes cultural literacy, that it ends up giving us a shared body of knowledge so we can all then succeed in the world with the things that the curriculum says we need to know before we graduate. What's wrong with that argument? I would argue that that's the same thing as the pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. If we are all given access to all these things, why are we not all accessing all these things? Well, it's simply because nothing, this concept of fair or equal is no longer a conversation. We have to now talk equity. Some communities of people have been impacted disproportionately by different policy choices and oppressive systems. And so we can't look at what's equal. We have to look at what's equitable and what's needed for those communities. Anytime I think uh, equity has been discussed, there's that cartoon of the guys <laughs> looking over the ballpark fence. And uh, uh, the bottom line is it says, oh, we'll just boost each person up so they can look over the fence. But boost them up by the same amount 
that's equality, not equity. Absolutely. Equity looks at, well, can they really boost themselves up to look over the fence? Or does just one pile of sand or another crate put someone taller but not necessarily give them what they need? Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. As we close here, Asia, let's bring you back in. You said earlier you grew up on Landon Street. I assume you are therefore then a product of Buffalo Schools. For sure. Tell me a story. What what happened in your education that would um, indicate the need for change? So I was fortunate enough to have a lot of teachers who were extremely dedicated to our education and not just what they were forced to teach us, but went out of their way to teach us what we needed to know about our history outside of Black History Month. Okay. Um, but there were a few. Um, so when I think about teaching children and when I was a child, it would have been really great to have teachers who understood the struggles that children go through because like as an adult it's like something happens and it's like as an adult how are you processing that and how are you expecting children to process what you're also trying to process right because they're younger than you and if you can put yourself in their shoes how would you think you would respond to something that happens when you were a child right so like uh I think from my understanding, talking to children um, and teenagers now, not much has changed when it comes to understanding that and there being support for that, right? Um, Like, how are we showing up for, for these kids? How are we creating safe space for them to be able to process what they're going through and talk to you about it without you're like, okay, well, you have to do this work. So, Is this the restorative justice concept or something smaller than that? Well, they're definitely... Needs. They're related, right? Yes, for sure. Okay. Um, and maybe it's, you know, they have to process their own trauma. I think we're all just trying to process our own trauma and not considering others sometimes. Yeah. Right? Um. Yeah, that's something that I definitely feel like we can improve on because sure. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't, not much has changed in De- that aspect. Reverend Wallen Glenn shaking her head over here, mother of six. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many times have your kids come home from school knowing something's wrong, but not knowing what the wrong is, you know? Every day. Teenagers don't have a real good self-assessment mechanism. It's every day. It's every day. And, you know, I'm grateful because of what I do and the way that I'm able to parent. But I have to often think about the parent who's holding two and three jobs to manage their household and what they have the the ability to offer their children versus what I have the ability to offer my children. And again, I'm going to say, I think that when we talk about education, that that's a huge conversation as, as far as the needs. But I definitely feel like there are some things that we can work on right now that would strengthen the process. And this goes back to the overall voice buffalo philosophy, rising tide. If you improve the education and improve the way we relate with uh, people with disabilities and improve the way we relate to the formerly incarcerated, each one of those cases, you're eliminating a certain amount of discrimination against people. Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the things we didn't highlight is so voice also has vibe. Vibe is voice influences building equity, and that is a committee of 13 to 30-year-olds that work on policy decisions that impact them. And I think that when we help our young people, our children, our young adults know that they have a voice and they can use it to bring forth change for themselves and their experiences, it definitely um, gives them a different level of confidence and ownership. Uh, and it helps them show up differently in the world. And so I think anywhere where we can create spaces like that, it's much needed. Uh, and we're grateful to do that work with Miss Alia Williams, who couldn't be with us today because she's out of town with family. 
Um, and she is part of that age group and she is leading that work. And we're seeing it make a difference in young people's lives every day. How do people get more information? Uh, you, you're you're very unique. I've I've seen a lot of different groups have different handles in different places, but online on Twitter on Instagram, it's all the same at Voice Buffalo. At Voice Buffalo, that's all you got to put in to find us. We're very easy to find, especially if you're in the Buffalo community. Um, and all of our email addresses happen to be our first names at voicebuffalo.org. And so feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you. All right. Reverend Denise Walden Glenn, Terrell Ford earlier, Asia Bigham earlier, all from Voice Buffalo, talking today on Buffalo What's Next here on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>